Let's just um, just want us as we come from back from lunch, uh, just so we can stay awake too. Uh, we just want to come before the Lord. And all this talk about relying on the Spirit um, and us just saying that uh, we want to be close with the Spirit, not only for uh, His use uh, or His function, um, but that we would come to the Lord and just uh, soak in His presence. I wanted to sing just one song together just so that we can remember, um, remember who we're talking about amidst all these concepts. And um, so we're going to sing a song, um, uh, Come Lord Jesus, Come. And I was told that you probably would know this song more or less. So, so all who are thirsty, all who are weak, we're going to sing that to, to the Lord now. Let's sing it together. All who, all who are thirsty. the fountain Sing it again, all who are thirsty. Sing that again. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Cries out to deep, as deep cries out. 
we sing as deep cries out? Two. Again, as deep cries out. We sing, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's just repeat that again to the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Lord, we want to come before you, uh, and let's just have a time to be silent uh, before the Lord. And uh, you can keep on playing, um, but as we're silent before the Lord, um, the practice of coming with no um, expectation. I think the times I've come to the Lord in silence has always been in anticipation for an answer or for revelation. And there's this exercise um, that I know from my Orthodox friends and Catholic friends that uh, spend a lot of time in contemplation where they come with no ulterior motive, um, emptying their mind, not even trying to listen, just being still before the Lord. So if we could just do that for just a few minutes, um, you don't have to think about anything. You don't have to strive for anything. It's a place of not trying to contrive of some, anything. So let's just do that just for a few minutes, if that's okay. You can be in any position you like, stand or sit.
And so today, Father, we um, come before you. Um, we want to worship you today. Um, all these things are worth it for us to talk about, not only to progress and to advance, Lord, but to um, be in awe of your goodness and your greatness, Lord. Uh, you're the kind of God who comes, uh, puts your money where your mouth is, comes down to this earth to show us tangible way, Lord. Man, are we so proud of the God who would wash our feet. But you also are a God who left and left, sent us the Holy Spirit, knowing that uh, perhaps you staying on earth would mean that we just huddle in one area in Jerusalem and stay there, but you enable us with the Spirit of God to go and be fruitful uh, and multiply, and you, know, you have a plan, you know, you have, um, you know the end of the story, Lord, you know how uh, and where we need to go, but I pray, Lord, today you help us to know how to rest in you, we know how to rely on you, Father God, and to uh, just be content in your presence as much as possible, so we glorify you today, we worship you, in Jesus' name we all pray. All right. All right. After lunch, always the hardest. <laughs> always the hardest to stay engaged, but hopefully we can today. Um, thank you for some of you guys coming by and talking to me and sharing how it's been meaningful so far. I appreciate those ta uh, conversations. And I just, I found that um, even in the, in the conversations, let me just get this right. In the conversations, lots of questions, lots of thoughts, um, lots of uh, things that are stimulating in our minds. And, and when I catch from that um, is there's a, a lot of us being able to process what I hear from some of you as I spoke is this idea of being able to know how to um, not see God only as a means to an end or the Holy Spirit as a means to an end, but... Um, being present uh, in the moment, and that's why I want us to just stop for a moment. Um, and I want to emphasize, just before we get into this next section, if you leave off with those first two sessions with simply a, a reflection, constant reflection on how you are shaped by our culture and how you don't notice the water you swim in, you know, and the more we realize the water we swim in, I think the more self-aware we are and the more we can distinguish what is gospel and what is not, what is the kingdom of God and what is not, um, because we are swimming in it. And so I ended off in Athens. Um, I ended off in Athens and giving that very tangible example of how he contextualized to that context and how he was improvising as he went um, throughout that um, and I thought that was very important, particularly this. And I'm going to close this section off in Athens with just a few, few words. My, my, my supervisor um, said something that really impacted me before. She said, are you about what you are against or are you about what you're for? And she said, the reason I asked the question is because living for what you are against looks a lot like living what you're for. It sounds the same, actually. Meaning, if we go back to the polarities, do you function in flexibility in reaction to structure? 
or for the value of flexibility itself. Are you for flexibility or are you against structure? For me, I have, man, my, you heard a little bit of my journey. I, I flip-flop for this and that, whatnot, because I'm just reacting. Like, I, 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 went, I went in a charismatic background, and then I ended up going to a reformed type of a church or whatnot. I, I went from um, a high attractional model to no organic uh, house church movement type of thing for people. I am super reactionary <laughs> when it comes to my reflexes to what um, I don't like when I come to those is so, is so fickle, I found. And I realized that I'm just a reaction. And actually, if I am functioning because I'm thinking someone is being critical of me and I'm reacting to their criticism rather than just knowing who I am, it's a big difference. Politically, you could say, you know, a lot of people who are against Trump, for example, a lot of the haters of Trump sound a lot like Trump. <laughs> and, and you could say something, my, my professor said, you actually, when you live your life for what you are against, you actually become a lot like what you are against, which I found profound. It's Mary Jo Letty, she was saying that. And so are you against bad theology or are you for good theology? Because if you live your life being about bad theology, you sound different than someone who's into good theology, okay? If you're for good theology, you have a proactive, you're running to something that's like attracting you to it, rather than I need to guard this church from bad theology, right? When you're guarding, your focus is a lot on criticizing and it, it just comes out differently in that way. Are you against hierarchy and structure, or are you for authentic community? So for me, if I were, when I did my house church, because uh, I came back to Toronto, I was doing, uh, uh, what do you call it, my time in the Yangshi Mission, I also, we planted a church, in a house church kind of thing as well, bivocationally. So in that time, if I were to write on a website, which we were against websites because that's too structured. Um, uh, we, if we were to have a, a website and it was going to say who we are, it would actually be like, we're a church who doesn't have paid clergy. <laughs> we are a church that does not gather in a church building. We would be a church of like the mission state, like how we structure it would be all the things we're not, actually. If you were to ask me at the start of like any church, like, in that season, I was so militant on what I was against that I became just a reaction, really. I didn't know who, where I stand. And I'm still in reaction. I'm always in reaction. And that's, that's part of that infinity. Like, it's always going to happen. And we are in it. And I am, even right now, reacting against the chaos of my time at Evergreen with street youth. I'm reacting to being in the ivory tower of Tyndale Theological Seminary. You know I mean? Like... My, my, I'm reacting right now. I guess the difference is that I know I'm reacting a little bit, and I'm beginning to hopefully center myself in the midst of those reactions, right? They, they were asking the question of, like, what is the solution in this whole thing? And if I were to see Paul in the way in which he restrained himself by saying, these all idols means that you're going to hell, he knew himself enough, hopefully, and he's not always the model of everything, but he knew himself, he grounded himself enough from people and onlookers who might look by and say, hey, you're not proclaiming the gospel in there, you didn't say the name of Jesus, you know. 
Aren't you going to refer back to, you know, you know, the law and all that kind of stuff? That's part of what it is to give the full rendition of the gospel. He's not, he's not functioning out of an insecurity uh, of like a grasping on like, maybe I'm like trying to mitigate the risk as much as possible. He's not focused on that. He's free to go into it and, and, and interpret and do things. And there's a freedom in that. And that comes when you are grounded in what you are for not when you are against. So if you live your life structured on what you are against, when you get into being nuanced with it, you don't know how because you don't know what you're for. If I'm into authentic community, or if I was back in my day doing like raising lay pastors and saying, okay, we're not gonna get, we're not, we're not gonna pay ourselves. Like we were raising our own support and all that stuff. We're not going to be like, the church is not gonna fund us. We want 100% of that money going to missions. We're not gonna pay anyone. Like that's how we, militant we were in that kind of way, like all the tithes and funding is going to the mission stuff, not us, you know, like, and I was really adamant on that, but really, if I'm stuck on that against being paid clergy this whole time, then I wouldn't be able to see that when the church was growing, there nece- it, was ne- it was necessary to have certain people in positions to help facilitate certain things in order to get the mission forward. Even if I know what I'm for and the empowerment of the lay, perhaps the empowerment of the lay happens better when you can have someone who's paid to help facilitate a bunch of things instead of us doing makeshift things with everything volunteer-based. Like it's, if I just knew what I was for and I wasn't reacting against something, then we would have been open to being, yeah, that's necessary and this is necessary, let's go forward, right? So I point this out in the beginning is because intuition and discernment in this new world requires you to be grounded solid in what you are for rather than what you are against. Against parents being traditional ways or being a healthy family. Are you for being a healthy family or are you against the traditions of your family before? Some of us want to be authentic, so we just want to break away from tradition, you know? This is my situation in an ethnic church, wanting to break away from my ethnic church because of all the borders that it had. Everything was so cultural. It was an Indonesian church, and it was very Indonesian and very, like, and my Christianity was infused into that. And then what happened? I broke free from that Indonesian church, and I went to this, to this world where nothing lands, and you have to be a chameleon wherever you are. Guess what? I longed for the sense of community in my Indonesian church that I tried to reproduce in this multicultural environment of whatnot, man, but there's just certain jokes that just ring true there, you know what I mean? There's certain, like, unspoken things, the way I would say auntie and uncle, like, you know, om and tanta is that what we would say in Indonesia. There's something safe there, actually, but what am I for? Because I knew what I was against, and I went to this world, and I just started to float in postmodernity, you can say, in all these things. So, my point to just close this Athens section is that I think we, it's very important to know our identity in Christ. Our identity and our, our true authentic self, it's very important to know that. And centering yourself and living out of a first understanding of who you are in Christ, having an identity in that, and not in an identity that is in reaction to your parents or reaction to what, I'm not going to be like my father, or something like that. I'm not going to be like that. You spend your whole life thinking, I'm not going to be like that. And then what are you for, though? You just know what you don't want to be, right? Or it's like my boss. I don't, I'm never going to be a boss like that. And I create a way of being a boss that's not like that. 
but it's empty because it's not running towards something. So we want to be, technically, we don't want to be in response to the world. We don't want to be reactionary to the world even as well. We want to be centered in what the church is meant to be. Because I would say as a result of being born in a postmodern era, I know how to deconstruct things very well. I know what I'm against. And if you look at all the comments on uh, social media or whatnot, everyone knows how to chime in when they want to hate on somebody for this or that. There's an abundance of comments for that. And in a way, we know how to deconstruct. But in our society today, there are few people in, in the younger generation now who are building, you know, who are actually constructing things. Because the moment you construct things, you build something and you are up for criticism. You know? As you were mentioning before, um, I, forget, I don't know your name there, but you were mentioning about the idea of like someone needs to make a decision. You, know? you can't just maintain in this infinity and continue to have this both end. You need to land at some point. But let me tell you, people are scared to land on anything unless it's like really general and big. Nothing specific, because the more specific you build something, the more it's up for scrutiny and the more that you will be pitted on one of the sides. And so if the answer to this back and forth is you need a grounding in this that allows you to function out of security rather than the way the church often functions out of insecurity, fear of loss of something rather than trying to attain something. And so it creates this indecision. Like, how many people do we know, especially my millennial generation? I'm millennial, by the way. Um, I'm, I'm an older millennial, but I'm a millennial. And in the millennial generation, we've, we're stuck with indecision. We're stuck with indecision. We don't know what we want because the possibilities are limitless. And we don't want to fine-tune what we're going for because that limits us from all the other possibilities that we happen to know is good as well. Right? So we are waiting to find the best, and so everything else becomes um, something that we are not eager to partake in. And so that indecision, you don't know what you are for, is as a result of the indecision that we have and the paradox of choice um, that we have. So I wanted to do that, but today, the last session, what I want to focus on is on having a collective mission. So I've talked about you know, the idea of the expert versus the volunteer. And then we talked about the structure versus the spirit-led, uh, which are probably not all-encompassing with what we talked about so far. But those are two things, right? Those are two dichotomies. And the last thing I want to address and approach, and this, is, this comes out of our um, conversations that I had with your, with your pastoral team about what your church's history is a little bit too, but I want to just break this down a little bit, what I mean by collective mission. And so we are in a very, of course, uh, there's, this, there's this person named Robert Putnam, who's a, a, a sociologist who says that uh, he wrote a book called Bowling Alone. And Bowling Alone and how, like, the um, amount of people bowling alone right now, it, bowling used to be this communal thing that people would come together to, to do. But we are a society right now with the number of people who bowl by themselves is ridiculous. Like how many people just bowl by themselves? And he gave this stat to show how isolated we are, how lonely we are as a generation. And this stems, I believe, when you post-enlightenment and through the modernity, because the focus on improving yourself and becoming an expert in what you are supposed to do and segmenting our society in means versus ends and being able to see everyone as in a utilitarian value, we've lost 
what perhaps is a little bit more Eastern. One, West is about progress. Eastern philosophy has a lot to do, like Confucian uh, philosophy has a lot to do with harmony. And harmony sometimes comes at the face of progress. If you want harmony in a group, it slows you down. <laughs> you know, it makes you intertwined with people. That's why there's a lot of negatives to this as well, but in Eastern context is it's more about uh, the respect in the face of the whole family rather than uh, in a bunch of individuals in the family. The family is one unit versus Western culture where you're a bunch of individuals in a family and people go living in many different places and have their own careers. You have a lot of the Eastern cultures that like maintain, even though someone has a desire to be a doctor or whatnot, which actually a lot of uh, Asian cultures like to do. Um, they, 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 they stay back and uh, help with the convenience store or maintain the business. A lot of my Indonesian friends go back to Indonesia to continue on the business of their father, whether it's their passion or not. Right? And so it's an interesting thing that harmony plays such a big role here where individualism is about progress and everyone finding who they're, uh, who, who they're supposed to be. And so I believe that has crept into the way in which we do ministry. Ministry right now is you seek out your own um, individual path. You decide for yourself which church you want to go to rather than going to wherever, you know, you're going to whatever church your family went to. No, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to find my own way. And this is what I have done a lot in my life. It's criticism criticism of myself. But like, I'm going to go my own way because that new path is, and it's linked together with my sense of missiology too, where, like, I'm going to go out. I'm going to be like Philip, go to Samaria. I want to spread out and do a lot of things. And because of that, we have developed a, a way of, say, for example, even evangelism. Some, some call this personal evangelism, right? When I was talk to you about missions, many of you will think about marketplace ministry. And if individualism is your lens in which you do missions, then here's how it looks like. A preacher will tell you, give a message, and then it will be an inspiring message on the fact that we need to reach the lost. And you will get convicted. And at the end of it, we'll have some action points for you. So what I want you to do is I want you to go home and I want you to pray uh, for some people that you feel is on your heart. And then you're going to go to work. And then, you, and then you'll do evangelism, on a, like a one-on-one -on -one kind of evangelism to someone in the lunchroom or something when it comes up. And hopefully that will turn into a Bible study in your lunchroom. And then some other people will notice. They will come as well. And, therefore, and then you'll ask them to come to church. And that's full circle. We're done. Like that's, that's how evangelism, personal evangelism, looks. And let me tell you, if you're not capital E type of evangelist, and it doesn't feel like you're gifting, even though we're all meant to evangelize, if you're not that person, you will feel like me and the constant sense of defeat, <laughs> a constant sense of like, huh, how am I supposed to do this? Every time I try, I've talked to this, I've been working in this place for 10 years, so my circle of people who I can reach out to is limiting. I already know that person is going to say no. And we are become plateaued in this like, I have no idea what to do now. And actually, this personal evangelism is very reactive. It's like, okay, you're talking to your neighbor and you're plowing the snow together and whatnot, and then, and then you get in a conversation. It's like, if they have an interest, then you engage in it. If you're at work and the conversation pops up, then you're engaged with it. It's, it's a reactive way of mission, where if it so happens to be, then it happens, and then you be ready with the word right away. That's what personally been, and that's good. I mean, we should have this as well. And also, the idea of personal evangelism assumes that you see people on a regular basis. 
And in our society, other than your work and out of your home, you're not seeing the same grocery store person uh, and the cash out line. You're not. You're not seeing the same banker, usually. You're not seeing the same people over and over again, unless you're the rare who does. But we just, my friend at, uh, at Wycliffe College in, um, in UFT, he's a professor, and he got his students to do a study. He said, I want you to go out, and for a month's time, I don't know, it's a long, long duration of time, I want you to do the regular rhythms of your life, and I want you to take, uh, bring and record uh, your first week, who you met that week. Okay, write all the names down. That's week one. And then after, I want you to do that uh, every week, tabulate how many times you saw that person in the month or whatnot. And the amount of ones versus twos or threes of them seeing the frequency is so little, right? You just see one person, one cash register, one time a month. You'll see them maybe in a month or two later in the same place. And it depends on which line you go to as well, right? Because they're moving to, right? So in all those things, it shows that actually personal evangelism, it assumes you're seeing the same people over and over again, and you can do that. But we're not seeing that. And it's rely only on one gifting, usually, of the evangelism when you do one-on-one. It's just you. So you're not gifted in it or whatnot. It's okay. You do it anyways. I, I encourage you to do it anyways. However, one-on-one, you don't have a team. You don't have people. And guess what? In the passage in John 13, where it says, John 13, it says, a new command I give to you, as I, as I mentioned to you before, a new command I give to you to love one another as I have loved you. It says, by this, they will know what? You're my disciples, right? It doesn't say your love for the lost. It doesn't say your love for people you're trying to reach out to. It says your love for one another, meaning that it's not actually, evangelism is not loving someone alone. It's them witnessing the body of Christ loving each other and seeing that and, and knowing that you are a disciple based on that. Actually, the, the visible seeing of a community loving each other is really hard to find in, in society today, right? And actually watching the embodiment of the church love each other and doing mission together collectively, which is so hard in our society because we all have our own schedules and our own agendas, there's something hard about that for us to be able to do together but it's actually witnessing a church sacrifice for one another, be there at the death of another person, all watching that, how much, other than them coming to church, how often do you allow the lost, the people that you're trying to reach, how often do they watch you engage with other Christians? Let me just say. Because personal evangelism is not going to accomplish that, right? It's only just doing one thing. It's, you're the representative, you're the ambassador of Christ, but there needs to be some visibility of the church's unique distinctive being manifest before people other than only inside the church. And so it calls us to be able to think a little bit differently with more a collective type of mission, um, which requires a lot of sacrifice, I got to say, um, on the part of the way in which you function our life. How, how, does I, how does my life work right now? Like, how do our lives, I'll, I'll go to Costco maybe once every two weeks and I'll get my Costco run, and I'm going to do that on myself because I have three kids and I have to find a time after they, go, like, after they go to sleep or like when they're in school and I'm coming from work to here. I'm not going to align my Costco trip with any of 
my church members, you know what I'm saying? That's so impossible. Like, there's no way we're going to find that aligned time there. We're not going to grab my coffee. It's whenever I can get out to do that. It's what my friend calls the Toronto hustle. The Toronto hustle, it makes us impossible to align our schedules. The only way we do that is through a doodle, you know? Or the, the only way we do that is through shared calendars where we can match it up. That's how bad it's become to find any kind of alignment of rhythm in our community. Now the question is whether we see our society right now and we say this is just how we live. So we got to live the best version of individualism as possible. That's one option. Okay? So then do your Bible study on the apps or do, do shared things online. Or we, can, we can do that. Like do your Zoom calls or your Skype calls and do a Bible study online right that because the Toronto hustle is so prevalent in our life, we can do that. And that's pretty much what everyone does. Like, <laughs> that's pretty much what we do. We just revolve it around this because we don't have any margin in our life for any overlap because it's not useful. <laughs> it's waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. It's, it's just waiting. There's nothing progressing when we just hang out together. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just... It seems like, is this hangout going to be useful in deepening our relationships or what? We're thinking about how useful it is, but there's no, like, overlap because it's not progressing us. It's counterintuitive. And so collective mission is, number one, figuring out how to align your community. So this requires proximity, which is not something I can just say do and everyone move in the same area. That's not a solution as well. But there's a proximity. That's why... If you heard of move-in here in Toronto, there's, a, there's a, a group of people doing move-in where they move to a neighborhood and they strategically... And we think of that as radical, but that's actually quite, you know, that actually makes a lot of sense to move in together with a particular group of people in a low-income housing and then to sh- smother that area with the gospel and do that together. That's, that makes sense because they're warping their life around the mission rather than trying to put the mission into their own rhythm, right? So the workplace analogy of personal evangelism is that this is the route I'm taking because this is my career path. This is the most convenient for my family. This is what's going to happen. This is my route. So reactive mission is like, while I'm on my route, on my rhythm, I will be missional wherever I'm going. So God, you have got to bespoke or you got to tailor the mission Sorry, bespoke, that means tailoring. Like, you gotta, you gotta tailor my missional call, call around my rhythm, right? Because I actually have the power because of this individual society to make my own path. And then whatever I interact with, I'm gonna assume, God, that that's my mission, and that's my mission, and that's my mission. Rather than, say, for example, classic missionary goes to Africa, their mind is about a community of people. So they get whatever job gets them connected to those people. They do whatever they can to create rhythms of their life as a a missionary to Africa to form the rhythm of their life around the people they're reaching rather than, I'm going to go to Africa, I'm going to go to Costco and whenever I want to, I'm going to do whatever I want to. No, like a missionary doesn't think like how we are. And if we're going to call ourselves missionaries, there has to be, and I'm, I'm preaching to myself just as much as you guys right now, but like, we have to be able to warp the rhythm of our life to a people, right? To a people group. 
Of all nations, like, that's the significant thing. I remember we were going to Unreached Nations Group. We went to on a mission trip to Vaughan, Turkey, which is a really unreached area in, in the Turkey eastern area on the border of Iran and Iraq. And we went there, and, and my missionary friends there, when we went together, like, they're all gung-ho. I was just coming for the ride. And we would do, like, the Luke 10, where we would go to house to house and all these things, and it was crazy. But when I went with them, these guys were devoting their life to the people in Vaughan, Turkey, and they were completely orienting their lives and the, what they would do and the occupations they would have to reaching those people. Now, so the, the challenge for me and the challenge for us today is how can you align your life? How can you, it's, it's an inconvenience, not because we're just pursuing inconvenience, but it's the only way for us to find overlap. So for example, if I make the, today's last session is supposed to be a little bit more practical. So the practical aspect of this is if you have a small group, the small group hopefully can have a proactive mission towards a particular place. And not just generally Ajax, you know what I'm saying? Like the small group's function is to focus on this soccer league group and all our kids will join this one soccer league even though we're in different places or whatnot. Or it's a school, or it's like a particular place, or it's a particular area that there is some kind of community happening there that we could actually infuse. Proactive mission is saying, let us all, as a, as a community together, develop some kind of community covenant and say not only indefinitely, but for a period of time, this is, I'm taking this stuff from a, a a group um, in, in the West, in Oregon, I think, called SOMA, where th what they do, what I like, is that they decide upon themselves, even though it's not everyone's passion and everyone's calling, they come together to, f to covenant for a year on a particular community. And what they will do is to say, let's try to do grocery shopping in this place, or let's try to make sure that in every, every sports outing in this school, we are always in the stands. So everyone can come, whether your kid is coming there or not. We all make sure we kind of come to those, and we'll be the ones to help in, in, in volunteering in this specific area. And then they will have a frequency of, a, oh, you're from that church? Oh, that's interesting. You're from that church too? Oh, that's weird. And then we have a lot of people concentrated in one place, which allows for intersections and connections and possible overlaps of rhythms that will continuously penetrate one specific area over and over again. So what you do is you covenant as a community to be able to do this and align your rhythms of your life and say, I'm actually going to try to have coffee in this place, even though it sucks. This coffee sucks. I'm going to do this because my community group or small group has a low standard of coffee and they all want to come here, but I'm going to come and just do this type of coffee versus my fancy stuff. Like, it's actually saying that. And no one is even there, but you say, I'm committing to engaging this one place over and over again because you're re revolving your mission not around yourself and your own gifting, but you're revolving it around the mission, right? Because the vision and calling is not about you. It's not about maximizing your gifting, I would argue. It's not. It's, because just imagine how... <laughs> Like, when we talk about our giftings, we think it's like it's such a big deal. Like, in light of God, in light of God, you know, it's so incremental, like, how we develop. It's not to diminish it. It's just to put it into perspective, how much we emphasize on that excellence 
even like, say, an excellence in worship or excellence in how we execute this. Does it look professional or whatever? How insignificant that minor improvement looks here in light of the kingdom of God, it's small to me, right? If it sacrifices other things. And so for us, it's important for us to visibly see the church in action, and we have to find some ways of doing that. So I don't have all the answers for this, but I'm going to stop here for a moment. When you think of collective mission, and you, and you see, say, this passage on John 13 of being able to see the church and them witnessing you are disciples by your interaction with one another, I'm sure you might have a lot of things to say about, Jesse, how are we possibly going to uh, warp our lives around each other and creating community? But what comes to your mind? You can ask about that. Is this too, is this too um, ambitious? Is this too like radical to comprehend that? What's your thoughts? Yes, and, and just to say before another question is that, I mean, what it involves is, 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 is presence, right, and um, bodily presence um, rather than usefulness, right? So presence, and, and um, I heard this guy talk about, especially in our society today, he categorizes four ways of engagement with uh, issues in this world right now. He says the first one is working, uh, working for, and then there's working with, and then there is being with, and then being for. Actually, I have a slide on this. I want you to see this, just because it, it actually matters to what we're saying here in, um, with regards to this. So, just so you can take a note. Samuel Wells, back to him again. Four ways of engagement. And he says this, he says, Working for is like your typical, like, give them the fish rather than teach them how to fish, right? That's how it is. So, so you give them, if someone, he gives the example of a grocery store. You see someone come out of a grocery store? I don't know why I'm talking about grocery stores so much today, but if someone comes out of a grocery store, and then uh, you, they're full of bags, and they're, they're trying to get through, and they're, they're, they're struggling. You look at them, working for is saying, oh, let me help you with that. Let me help you with that. And you grab all of their groceries, and you say, I, I got you. Don't worry. You don't have to do anything. I got it. And you bring it to their car. Simple act. They say, thank you. It's done. Right? Working with is going to that same person and saying, hey, listen, um, I'm taller. You're shorter. Why don't you grab these ones? I'll take the big ones. You do your part. I do my part. Let's do it together. Come on. Participatory. So we go together, and then we, we go, and we bring it to the car. Done. That's number two. Being with, and it kind of sounds ridiculous in the being with. Some of you are standing with them and says, hey, how's it going? You look lonely. Do you want to talk with me a little bit while you walk there? I'm not going to... I can help you if you want, but I don't need to. And then we walk together, 
and then we engage, and then we give, uh, you know, we, we do that, and I just accompany them through. It sounds ridiculous in that situation, but I'm actually advocating for that one. And then the last one is being for. Now, being for is the most interesting one, which is our society today. Being for is like, I don't really want to engage with you as someone struggling with groceries, but I have a big idea about how to connect people who are really burdened with too much groceries, and I want to match them together with people who desire to help people um, carry groceries. And I'm going to develop an app so that every time you go into a parking lot, those two people will be matched up together, and I will solve the issue of heavy groceries to cars, but I don't have to engage in it. But the app will do amazing things to solve more problems of heavy groceries than I could ever do on my own. That is typical my generation below. Like, so, um, so that's how I see it, right? And so I, I mentioned this, because I think it's huge for me, is that when I, look at the people, when I look at what it takes for us to envision rhythms that are together and, and, and have these common spaces, the thing I learned at Evergreen is that hanging out in a drop-in center and not having any programming and just sitting around and opening the doors enough so that people can sit around and get out of the cold and just hit, hang out creates the platform in which it ex expedites all the things I wish to do with getting people housing or whatever versus the social sector now, which says, come when you're ready to do something. Come and it'll help you get housing when you're ready to get housing. For us, we left it be, they came, they sat, are you looking for housing? No, 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 I want to be on the streets. I'm fine, whatever. Okay, that's cool. And then have some food, whatever. We, we hang out. And then once the time comes where they want to engage, we've created the relationship. We've created that through what seemed meaningless, just presence. Yes. Created the, the basis for all the exchanges and the transactions or whatnot to occur further, right? And so I think that something like being with is very important. I remember Henry Nouwen. <laughs> so Henry now, yeah, Henry now has this book called Adam, one of his books before he died, where he's, Henry Nowen worked with dis, uh, dis, people with disabilities uh, at the end of his career, and he just started to think about, like, he's like a professor at Yale, all that kind of stuff, and he, he decided to just focus on people with disabilities, and he found, just like myself, like, I, even more, he can't even use any of expertise to function with them, like, all of his ideas and words he, and he related it uh, to say that, like, this ministry is about body, not about words. You have a disabled person who can't even speak, who can't even talk on an intellectual level, and his presence somehow ministered to Henry Nouwen in that exchange. And so that presence is, like, so key for us because that creates, and that is the, I believe, part of the church's distinctive in, our, in, in the Toronto hustle kind of culture that we live in. Like, we can embody that if we embrace that aspect of it. But that's what makes me reminded. Yeah, go ahead. I was talking to Ken's wife Andrea. on Andrea. Yeah. And at lunch. And one of the things she said embodies what you're talking about. It is the act of being with. And Henry Nowen's concept of downward mobility. But there's a step further that I think is important. She said, Jesus, as a shepherd, came into being with the sheep, but he became the sheep. He took on the form of a servant, became nothing, no equality with 
space, there's great power. And I think Jesus, there's a spirit of yeah. uh, a presence of God that happens in that space. I don't, I don't know if you ever hit that shift or not. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. And I would say to this, though, just one step further is that, so incarnational ministry or like chameleon type of ministry of being a Jew to the Jews and Gentile to the Gentiles, I, I've taken that to the extreme, like huge time, right? Where I've, I'm like, okay, my life is not my own. And what I ended up doing, and the, and the negative thing to it perhaps that I have found, is that I, I thought to myself, because it's very biblical, like abandon yourself, like die to yourself and be all for these people. And what I realized is that the collateral to that, and of course the basis of that is true, but what I ended up becoming is a non-person. I became a non-person in order to be a chameleon with wherever I am. And let me tell you, people do not respond to non-people very well, <laughs> right? Like, when you're a non-person, what I mean by non-person is that I didn't have an identity anymore. Like, yes, I have an identity in Christ, but, like, it seems like I had no hobbies anymore. <laughs> I had no, nothing that was making Jesse, Jesse. I, my distinctive, I tried to lose my distinctive when I said that I died to myself. I also died to my personality or died to certain things of me that are actually the human aspects of me that are okay to keep, and I did that in order to assimilate and be with the people. Which, so I agree with the idea of incarnating. And I think, though, especially with the youth, because the youth can see it. When I try to dress like the youth and be cool and all that kind of stuff, they can see right through me like no other, right? Because particularly the homeless youth. And they will verbalize that, too. And say, what are you trying to do? Like, you know, and like, so in that context, I, I really couldn't fake it. Like, I tried. Like, I tried to talk like them a little bit more and all that in the beginning, Tried to be cool. Guess what? They're like, you know, you can't fake trauma. You, know, you, can't, you can't fake um, pain. You can't fake witnessing so many deaths. You can't fake that stuff, right? And I had to eventually, like, lean into who I am and just be very comfortable. And this goes back to the whole Paul and Athens thing. There comes a point where you just got to be who you are. You know what I like about Kanye West right now? <laughs> if any of you guys are following that stuff, I don't know what you agree or think about it, but the thing about Kanye West is very fascinating to me, is that when you're trying to be a church and a relevant church, all right, we're always playing catch-up to society and the trends. We're always playing catch-up, which seems like we shouldn't be, actually. It's actually funny. I think people are more these days attracted to, like, hierarchical, like, church structures with the person with a collar. I think people are really attracted to that these days. You know why? Because it's true to who they are. Rather than trying to be cool, our society detects it in a moment. When you look at Kanye West, what's interesting thing about him, he just became a Christian recently and whatnot. Uh, and then the thing that's interesting, he has these Sunday services where he does all these uh, things, it's attracting a lot of attention, a lot of whatnot. And whatever you believe in is, is side is aside, because I'm not saying everything is good or bad. But what I think about is that if you know Kanye West, if any of you do, Kanye West is the trendsetter. Like he is one of the, he is actually a trendsetter. So when he does it, it works. <laughs> because he is at the epitome of pop culture. He's the one who's determining it. So when he tries to do things, he's ahead of the curve, and he's making church ahead of the curve in his way. But it's funny when we, like myself, grew up in the church, you know, pastor's kid or whatnot, Bible boy, literally, my email password, uh, email, uh, my email <laughs> Bible boy, like me trying to be the relevant guy in that kind of way is actually, I should lean more into who I am rather than trying to be everyone. So it's kind of contradictory what I'm saying a little bit to things, but yeah. 
Just a moment before, is there anyone else that has any, a thought to say? or No one in this side, huh? <laughs> this one, yes, go ahead. Absolutely. Willow Creek, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that takes... Yeah, that takes... Me and, me and Jim were joking around about during the 40 days of purpose, like my church would do the 40 days of purpose, and we did all that stuff. We were, we were joking around that we would get these scripts from the, the sermons that we would have to do based on what they did over there, and I would preach a message that someone else did. It's the epitome, like that 40 days of purpose stuff. It's good. There's a lot of good stuff into it, but the, the, the epitome is it's a best practice that worked in Saddleback, you know, that we imagine will work somewhere here, which is totally different, right? It's a totally different context, a totally, and it robs us of, of the process of creating something that's... Creating the model is just as val- valuable as executing the model, right? And so they went through the advantage of doing all that, creating it, but then we get it and we just execute it. It doesn't, to me, it didn't make sense to do that. But I would say yes, like we were, I think it's very important that we, even if it's subpar, even if it's not as good, our process of creation, which is the next part I'm going to get to just to close off on some very practical things, that process of cultivating that, even though it's messier, produces something better in the end. Let me just take one more question. Do you, do you have one over there? Yeah. Amen. That's a good... Can, can, can you say that one more time? They didn't hear it. Can you say it one more time? He says, and the rest of the time, he's floundering. <laughs> I already, like our conversation before, I already like you a lot. Okay, um, okay so let me end with this. Uh, when time we end again? 2.45? Okay. We, we, huh? Okay, good. All right. All right, so I don't think I'll go that far. But let's, uh, let's end. Uh, okay, so I want to bring this practically. And I, I, I'm proposing this collective mission, and it's hard um, to, to implement. I'm just going to put it out there. You guys can process all you want afterwards. Um, but I just want to end with um, this. This is, I find, um, the fascinating thing. So part of, I think, improvisation and part of... Um, being a church that empowers the lay forward, and if I want to push that, or being a church that is spirit-led, I think requires a, a high level and sophistication on facilitation, right? I think that, and I'm talking to leaders here, so you can be in positions where you can facilitate, where you can be able to notice what is in your congregation and, or in your small groups or in your ministries that you're doing. You can notice... Um, the way in which people are made and geared, how to bring that together, how to hear and cultivate the Word of God together, to listen well to um, the Word of God together and to sense where God is leading us. Usually, if you lead not as a facilitation but more of a monologue, you're telling them what to do. 
You're hearing from the Lord. You're executing the plan. But if you can cultivate an atmosphere within the small community, uh, ministries here, or even just as a group here as you discern, which is, you know, it's basically an example of what you did over here a little bit, um, but bringing it further, not just saying, what are your thoughts here? And then we put it on the board and let's pray about that a little bit more. And it doesn't necessarily go past that. But how do you really facilitate and gather the information to literally listen to what God is doing? So I'm going to start off, I'll come back to that slide. Just imagine here me for a moment. I thought of this um, uh, years back when I was doing the trainings for uh, our small group leaders. Just imagine here for a moment, because when you go back to the modern version or the expertise or the professionalization of how we do ministry, it's a lot like a restaurant. A restaurant, you come into a restaurant, you engage with a server who is very polite with you, who asks you based on a menu what you would like to eat. You order that of which you are engaging with, and then it goes back to the kitchen, the order. They'll make it with a skilled professional who will make that meal hopefully very good, and they'll serve it back to you, and you will eventually rate it on Yelp or whatnot, whether it was a good meal or not, and whether the service was well. And this is, you know, and this might sound old, or you might have heard this a lot, but this is our consumeristic society that has infused itself into the way we go to church. How many times do I hear my friends say, I went to a church, ah, the preacher was okay. Suddenly, it's the way they're choosing the church is based on whether the worship was good or the preaching was good. That's literally most of my, you know, the way in which we determine where we're going to go a lot of the times. Um, so then that's based on a consumeristic kind of, like, review. I wonder how many people will look at reviews on Google when, when, they, when they're about to go to a church. You know, I wonder. It, it's going to go there if it's not there already. So that number, number one is that, where we are trying to do the best we can. And if this is your objective, then you will, you will, you will rise or fall on how well you perform and how good your experts are. So this will lead you to hire the best people who's the most cutting edge. This will lead you to get the best of the best when it comes to carving that out and increasing more and more in your professionalization of how you have like the production and lighting and all these different things. So that's one. Number two, though, a cooking class. And I think you can see where I'm coming with this. But a cooking class, you will all come in, and everyone's going to get a pot and pan. And everyone is going to know, get a knife. And everyone is going to follow. There's still an expert. There's still someone paid there who's going to cut the peppers and whatnot and cut the meat and say, OK, let's saute it together. Everyone sautes it together. And what I imagine in a cooking class is it's messy. You will go through the process. You'll get dirty in your hands. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll figure out how to make this meal. And it will probably, you'll make your mistakes. And by the end of that meal, you will get a subpar version of that meal, right? You're not going to get the best meal, actually. It'll be pretty, maybe, it's likely going to be pretty bad, right? It's not because you made it. You didn't do it as well. You sauteed it wrong or whatnot. But then at the end of the day, you'll probably be eating that whatever they're making there, a pizza or whatnot. You'll probably, at the end of the cooking class, have a little bit of flour on there. There's no tablecloth. There's no wine glass. There's no nothing. And you're just eating it on the counter and the table, engaging with the other people and eating it. But guess what? In that process, I say this all, is the cooking class allows the empowerment of people to learn how to cook. <laughs> you know, It allows us to be able to be uh, people who engage into the ministry. And so 
Let me ask you, when you think about the ministries that you lead, and when you think about how you are orchestrating it, are you doing everything you can to make it as fine, a fine dining experience as much as possible? Do you feel like you are catering it to that? Or, or do you feel like the people that you're serving or the people in your ministry are there expecting that of you as well, which is another reason why I would try to go for the restaurant route too, and you're trying to meet that expectation? Or perhaps can you be a group where you necessitate, I call it a potluck culture, a potluck culture where we will come together, and I literally did this physically in our small groups, where I would say, if you're going to have food in your small groups, make sure no one's cooking for everyone. Make sure you make it so that everyone is an indispensable part of your community, and therefore, when they come, they're going to bring something, if they're able, and number two, they have to bring a part that if it's not there, it kind of ruins the meal. And you guess another one, you as a leader cannot bring the backup food. So if the meal has pasta sauce, but no pasta, guess what? We're eating pasta sauce. Like that's, that's what we are. And I, I did that, and we would do that in our community, to emphasize that if you come to the small group, and you're not going to bring anything, like something, it could be something small, then the success of our time together or our, the way in which we form that is going to be as good as we all make it. Now, it's the task of the leader to create the environment where they feel like their voices are heard. So it's, in, it's one thing to say that to you all. Hey, try to be more and just lay that out for your group. But if the way you facilitate is a monologue, you can say all you want about being a participatory like group. You can say that all you want, but the way you're leading is listen to what I'm saying. And, uh, and you're the, you, you might be the type of person who, like myself, is a silent time, and you have to fill that space. Okay, let me elaborate that message, passage for you. Okay, let me fill in the space. How many of you can ride the silence, right? How many of you can ride the silence? Because that silence, uh, it's very significant. Awkward silences in small groups or prayer gatherings are so significant to me because it shows how much I think I will rule, <laughs> how important I am. <laughs> it really is my gauge. And, it, and, it, and it, it makes me question a lot of things. Number one, do these people feel empowered enough to speak? Number one. Am I doing everything I can to give them the tools to get the word of God themselves? Am I doing that? Uh, and am I helping them elaborate? Am I being a cooking class thing, or am I just feeding them all these wonderful dishes that they never can uh, cook themselves? Number one. Number two, I say, how am I, my pride, am I resisting the need to fill in that gap to make sure we get somewhere at the end? I'm also thinking about that. Those awkward silences make me think a lot about the power dynamic that's existing and how equipped the people in my group are um, to, to move forward together. So the potluck culture is one that is for us to literally actually restrain ourselves from doing it all in order to get people to feel the necessity and the void to fill, right? That's what it is. Does that sound good? So that's one thing, potluck culture. Listening well, I believe this, if you want to make this extremely practical, it has everything to do, discernment, the first process of discernment is listening and watching and seeing. So I have very few people I know in my life that listen well. I married one of them uh, who listened well. She's a psychologist, so she needs to listen well. But um, 
listening well means this to me, and I, I, take it for what it will, but listening well is being able to help someone along as they're communicating through your nonverbal actions, through the way in which you nod, the way in which you eye contact or not eye contact, depending on what they are comfortable with. It's the questions you ask. You know someone's listening well when they ask like really good questions, right? And I believe the art of asking good questions is so key in order to um, show someone that you are listening. Showing someone listening is not regurgitating what they're saying. It's actually deepening where they're going. And I know when someone is listening well to me, when I feel like I'm saying things I never intended to say to them. When I, when I start to elaborate in ways that get me deeper and deeper into my thought that I would have never gone before. So when you are able to listen well, you are calling people into reflection. You're calling people into like examination of themselves, even if they come to the same conclusions you would have said. A good listener, I find, would suspend their assumptions of what needs to be said and hold that at bay and trying to translate what our assumptions are to tell them into a question so that they can say themselves um, rather than spoon feeding it to them. You know, that's how I see listening as listening well. And so I get into the details. I know how this is so far from the Bible or whatnot right now, but I get into the details of this is because the philosophy of facilitation and incorporation of people into uh, the work of the ministry is just a thought and it's an idea, and it's a model. But actually doing it face-to-face -face kind of combat is a whole other thing, right? So you may think you're doing it, but if your inclination is always to fill in the space of the awkward silence, or if you don't even give homework to people in your groups to read on, or if you don't tell them, read this passage before you come to our Bible study, if you're saying, if you're expecting significant revelation from on-the-spot kind of non-reflective Bible reading, then it's kind of hard, right? Like, if you're expecting a lot for them, give them the homework, let them come meditating on it, and they'll bring something, perhaps, of substance, right? And so that, and also, um, this is, like, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll really close it with this, but the last thing is about, is about meekness, because I think all these skills I'm saying, it lands all in this idea of meekness, and you might have heard many things about meekness or not before, but this word sums it up for me when it comes to the idea of restraint and the idea of controlling the power that you have in this place of leadership. And I think this is the characteristic that is fundamental to facilitation. Um, so meekness is one of those fruits of the spirits, right, that comes out. And meekness, as they say, is not weakness. Meekness is not even the same as humility, although you need humility to be meek. Meek is known to be uh, defined as power under control. And power under control is significant in all that we're speaking about today is because I believe it's very Jesus to have power under control. Imagine Jesus on earth is God, who being in very nature God, you know, did not use that to his advantage, but he humbled himself to become like a servant. And I'm just imagining, if you're Jesus, you're God, you're like... You're exuding glory like you should be. In your default mode, Jesus is like exuding glory. That's how I'm thinking. But yet, he did not have any majesty to him. And he had to conceal a lot of that glory. And, and I think of Jesus, you know, when you think of Jesus, amazing miracles, all these things, that's just, that's, 
No, his default is constant, like everyone gets, you know, blown up. That's his default, glory all over the place. But the fact that Jesus is, I, I like to brag about Jesus more because of his restraint. Because he was the very nature of God, but yet he, he held it back. I remember being in a, in a debate. Not, I was in good life. I was working out. I saw my friend. We hadn't seen each other in a long time. He was, uh, he's a Muslim. He became like more of a Muslim than before. I met him, and we were in the good life, and I was working out, and we were talking, and suddenly got into religion, and then, and then he says, like, how can you believe in a God who would actually come down and take a crap, you know, like, in, you know, in the washroom? Imagine God would go down and do something as disgusting as that or whatnot, and I remember, like, yelling in good life and saying, that's exactly why I love my Jesus. <laughs> I was like, that's exactly why, that he would do that. <laughs> he would actually come down and, you know, Actually, that's my selling point to you. <laughs> you think that's the negative. That's what I'm trying to tell you is the, the gold of Jesus is that. And I think, actually, the thing I brag about of Christ is the restraint, is the ability to hold himself from doing that. And so that characteristic is meekness, is power under control, you know. But I think meekness is a hard thing for us to do because we are always trying to do this, this rat race with one another. And I, and I, I liken meekness to, like, um, just imagine you're in a race. Um, there's a, a moment when you're in the beginning, like, you get, you want to manifest power because you want to sh sometimes show your, your colors and who you are, right? I do this all the time in many ways, but... You know, I just remember in my high school days doing racing, like doing a 400-meter dash. In the beginning, you know, you, you, emotions are all over the place. You see this cocky guy over here, the person who beat you last year or whatnot. All those emotions are in play. And this happens in our small groups or this happens in our ministries all the time. Um, where someone is thinking they should lead it, not you, <laughs> or, or you can sense it and they feel it or whatnot. And there's all these emotions of us proving ourselves. And it's like as if we need to solidify that in order to calm everyone, like, to make sure everyone knows who's in charge. And I find that in this race analogy, I find that, like, riding the 400-meter dash, in the beginning, like, when you, you know what time you can run when you've done it over and over again. You know the best time you can do, and you know that it takes for you to just run calmly in the beginning, pick up speed, perhaps, in the halfway mark, and then the last 100 meters, dash it out. And like, that's in your mind, you know how to do that over and over again, and you get one time every single time, around there. But then you get into the midst of it, and you see the personalities around you, and you see all the insecurity inside of you, and it makes you, in the beginning of the race, run way faster than you needed to expending all the energy that could have been used at the end that you planned to. And suddenly you're off your game. And you really realize that as a result of all your insecurities and you trying to prove that not even for a moment can you beat me to the other person when you just needed them to just let them think they were winning for a moment and then get there, I find that is kind of a similar analogy for meekness in being able to marshal that power and execute at the right time. So there needs to be an inner confidence in one who is leading. Because humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light, of God's, um, in light of God's power inside of us. So let me end with this quote. This is by A.W. Tozer. He says, The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his or her own inferiority, 
Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God has declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is, in the sight of God, more important than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. That is his motto. He knows or she knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him or her. And he has stopped caring. He rests perfectly content in, to allow God to place his own value. He will be patient to wait for the day when everything will get its own price tag and real worth will come into its own. Then the righteous will shine forth in the kingdom of the Father. He is willing to wait for that day. In the meantime, he will have attained a place of soul rest. As he walks on in meekness, he will be happy to let God defend him. The old struggle to defend himself is over, and he has found peace, um, which meekness brings. He also said, The meek man cares not who is greater than he, for he has decided long ago that the esteem of the world is not worth his or her effort. So I think I like this quote to end on because I think that um, it rings true throughout everything we talked about today. If there's one thing that we can leave off is there's a need to ground ourselves in who we are in the Lord, as you were saying, in what we are clothed in God. There is something that we need to rest in that is not living out of scarcity, you know, is not living out of this insecurity but there is a very grounded, mature feeling that we need to permeate in, our, in the way we do ministry that is not reactionary, that is not what we are against. There's a security in what we are for. There's a knowledge, uh, there's a knowledge of the, the sense of um, who we are in the Lord, that we do not need to compete, we do not need to compare there's something very satisfying. And once we get in that soul rest that it speaks about, we will be able to, at that point, function out of our authentic self that we're made in Christ. There's an authentic self that we can get to, an authentic like community as well, that it is distinctively Forest Brook, you know? It is distinctively Forest Brook in this neighborhood. And you are not scrounging for best practices here and there. You are finding it birthed out of your narrative from the past and, and, and it propelling you to the future of what you guys are going to. And there's no need to be disgruntled by things of the, the past. It is part of the narrative. It's part of the mistakes. How can you grow forward? How can you move forward in it? It's something about being rooted, you know, in, in God and, and in who he is. And, you know, the best thing about it, you know, we, we were talking... Um, you're mentioning, uh, we were talking here about the theater uh, and the improvisation kind of analogy. And I was being critiqued in that improvisation, the problem with improvisation is that there's no like finishing to it, there's no ending to it. But the amazing thing, as you were mentioning back there, that in scripted plays, even when they, they um, have scripted plays, as they engage, every play is different because of the interactions they have and the way in which your emotions come out is different. But that's one thing. But the, the main thing is that we know how it ends. And I love that when you were mentioning. Because improv, 
Improv means that nothing is, there's no finality, there's no ending, but we do know that there is a story, there is a narrative that we follow. We know how it ends. <laughs> we know in the story and the gospel and the kingdom narrative, there is an ending. There is a point in which we know that God will prevail. We know what it will look like, that the kingdom of God will be coming here on earth and all will be restored. There is an ending that we are moving towards that has been set that I'm just picking up from what you were saying with regards to that. That as we do that, we don't have this insecurity of improvisation with no finish. We improvise with the Holy Spirit knowing that someone knows how it's going to end and, and the steps that it's going to take to get there, right? And so we are just knowing a piece of the puzzle a lot of the times as we improv and, improvise and as we go through that process. But as we go there, God is just going to lead us step by step, just enough knowledge, a lamp unto our feet, where we know what is ahead, just enough, and the Holy Spirit is going to give us that, but we have the benefit of knowing the end, right, which is an amazing thing that we can give glory to God. It's not just justification before the Lord, it's not just being sanctified in Him, but there is a glorification, there is a moment when Christ will return, uh, and it will be glorious, and we can remain secure in that, versus just wondering whether things will turn out all well. And that can ease our anxiety to have solutions man-made or how it ends. We can ease that tension and that anxiety because we know that God knows the ending and he will form the best solutions and he will solve all those problems where no tears will be shed anymore, right? So I'm going to end with that. That's my end. And um, I just want to invite whether the leadership or whoever is going to take on to help facilitate. I'll let you guys just conclude and process or if you need to ask questions um, as well, I'm here as well. But I'll, I'll close it with that and you guys can. Sounds good. We've got, uh, we have a few extra minutes and we still have Jesse. I just wonder if anybody has any questions or comments um, on the presentation today from Jesse that you'd want to share before we uh, do our final act. Cliff. I do think that one thing is, uh, so I, I, I'm actually on a binge right now that I, I'm binging on the fact that I love like long narratives of people who stay in churches long time. It just, it shows me so much commitment, integrity, and people sticking with it and not fleeing when things get difficult, right? So 
I think that's good. But number two, I, I do see, just like the church, um, the early church, this idea of constantly pushing um, adjustments that propel us out and shake, shake the foundations of the church, even if it means um, uh, planting a church out or whatnot, creating a disruption, actually releasing your best people from your church to do something new and then everyone else holding it, that will automatically change what is inside, right? So I think there are things like the persecution after Stephen that happens to you, and there are certain things that can happen actually that are planned that will disrupt it, which is kind of nicer to do because you can plan for it. But I'm saying that I think that's part of it. It's, it's making it uncomfortable because then that reorientation of the existing community, say that example, makes marginalized those who are on the margins of the church find a new place. Because if it just sits, and this is the pattern, and someone's on the outsides and the group of people are on the inside, you need sometimes dramatic shifts to create open spaces where those on the margins can find their way into the core as well. Um, so I think that's part of it. And I, one other thing to say is that I think that how we present ourselves to and uh, being an inclusive church to those who would not normally be there some adjustment sometimes needs to be made in the songs that we sing and the preachings that we give and how perfect we tend to communicate we are sometimes, and maybe not too, but I don't know. That might be an insufficient answer, but that's, that sort of makes me think. It's, it's a hard thing to do it because I'm really loving and honoring people who stay true. I think it takes a lot to do that as well. You know? Else? Andrew. You want to give the mic? They said that. This may sound like a rude question. <laughs> what does this mean? Like, what's the point? Like, what does this mean for, for our context here at Forest Brook? And maybe we're getting there. I don't know. But I, I, yeah, I just, uh, all this sounds good, but like, what's the point? Like, where, <laughs> what's the direction? You, is, is that, is that enough of a question? Elaborate. <laughs> so what do you, what do you, what do you uh, see as getting to the point? Uh, keep going, yeah. Yeah, I mean, no, I don't think anybody who calls himself a Christian would argue that, or, or would disagree with you. You know, oh yeah, like, for sure, we should be evangelizing, we should be finding new ways to evangelize, but what does that look like in the life of us here at Forestbrook? What does that mean in terms of direction moving forward? How do we adopt this? I've heard lots of you know, good practices, but what does that culturally mean for us, contextually mean for us? D am I making sense there? Yeah, yeah, yeah I get that. I, I want to know, where are we going? That's what I want to know. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, you can answer your side. Uh, from my side is that's up to you. <laughs> uh, I'm here as a third party to... Uh, to help to see things differently, perhaps, or not, um, to do that part. And it's up to you and your leadership to be able to take what you like and what you don't and apply that to where you're going. Uh, but I'm not here to tell you where you're going. I'm here to, if, if you want to know the point of today, my point is to, if, if, if it helps at all, is to dismantle, um, is to understand the water we're swimming in. And, and, and to understand how culture has influenced the way we have created goals. As I told you, that guy was saying, what's the big deal with, I, I want to function in my gifting. I'm trying to do today is to kind of dismantle and say, 
what are the presuppositions that make you think that is right? And if that, was, if that could be helpful or not could be helpful, it could be too below the surface, and for some of us wants to get something very practical to go forwards, I think that is more the initiative of what you need to do and need to think through, but I hope to just provide that part, that to, to rethink those things. And so for some of us, it could be already obvious that those are the things that we need to do, or I, we, we already see those kind of things, but hopefully other people can grab on that too as well. But that's my role in here, but you can explain your side or what you think. Sure, I'll say something to that. And um, so what I would say to that, Andrew, and, and to everybody is, uh, I wrote a blog about a month ago, I guess, on vision, right? And so I, I addressed the question of where are we going? And people who say, well, where, where, where are we going? And the short answer is, I don't know. Um, but the, the longer answer is, we're learning to follow. And, and that's an important part. And, and so much of what was said today so speaks into our context and our, and our journey. Especially, I, I love the bit, uh, Jesse, about, about facing the past and having the past push us into the future. Right? Because we don't have a destination in mind. We don't have a picture of what it's going to look like. We just, we just don't have that. Um, because we're learning to hear, we're learning to listen, not to see, and and so at this moment, our des- where we are as a, as a church is we're trying to gather as many of our congregation as possible around listening to Jesus, so that when He speaks and tells us to move forward, we can move forward as a group. Um, because right now we're we're so scattered. We're so scattered, you know, from one another and so scattered from, from, from Jesus and pulling and pushing against each other that, uh, that we don't have a unified body to be able to do that. And so, you know, it's not that we're standing still. You know, I, I don't believe we're standing still for a second. Um, and especially as, as I look back over the last five years, we were talking about this at lunch. Jesse, you wouldn't know about this, but we, so many times in the last year, I've gone back and reminded people that it was five years ago that we started talking about being made for more, right? And, uh, and the fact that, that we were actually not just supposed to be making converts, but to be making disciples. And that disciples as followers of Jesus weren't just people who had, had a set of doctrines in their head. They were actually people who were living a life in response to Jesus and laying it down as a sacrifice. That was five years ago, right? We, we, st- we started talking about that. And then we, we realized, you know, that, um, that we can't do this on our own, that, that to try and live this life under our own power wasn't going to work. And so we, we realized that we needed to understand and have the Holy Spirit more. And so we, we opened ourselves up to the Holy Spirit, and, and then we realized that, that this whole mission that we have isn't just some future thing. We're not pining for heaven. We're not waiting for some glorious day in the future. We have a mission right now to reach our world and change our world and impact our world, that the kingdom of God is here now, and we're working on behalf of the kingdom of God here now. Yes, it will come one day in its fullness, but that doesn't change our responsibility to live and work for the kingdom of God here and now. And then we went through the book of Ephesians and talked all about our identity, realizing that, you know, how do we do this? If we try and do this in our own strength, we're thinking that Forsberg has something to give. No, it's as the people of God and knowing who we are in Jesus and the identity that he has gotten for us and bought for us. And from that place, from that place, we reach out to the world and we have something to offer, right? Uh, And then, you know, leading up to to our, our focus this year of just looking at Jesus and saying, we were called to be imitators of Jesus. How, how did Jesus love? How did Jesus live? And what would it mean for you and I to look like that? That's kind of where we've been. 
As I look to the, as I look and face the past, that's the past that's pushing us into the forward. So we know that we need to, we need to learn how to listen. We're trying to learn how to do that. We know that we, we need to have faith because whatever is in the future, it's going to take risk and challenge. And, and, and so we're okay for that. But if you were to ask me, what is the thing that defines us in the future? I can't point to a thing. I can point to a person. And the person is Jesus. And we want to be so focused on him and have our hearts and our ears so open to him that he can lay down any future for this church he wants and we won't balk. Do you, do you mind if I just chime in? And sure. Another thing, just say. Oh, I got you got a mic. Because um, I, I can hear too, like, um, the desire to get the, and I, it, it's not necessarily the responsibility this time to do that, but however, I do feel um, what I agree really with what you're saying too is is the need to like action, action um, those things that have been built on, right? So you have this focus and then the need for the Holy Spirit and whatever. And then there needs to actually be ecclesiological shifts that need to change that is, that is visibly showing the trajectory rather than just cognitively or just spiritually or just theologically. But there needs to be another level where the structures, literally structures, whether it's like how you position your chairs, like those stuff that actually reflect that. That's the hardest part, by the way, is knowing the theology part and then bringing it into an actual change in the way a church functions. Because it might not get to the answer of where we're going, but it gets to the answer of, well, these, the medium in which we're doing it is going to change, and we need to change the, the, the way we're doing it in order to say we're doing it, like, you know? And so, for example, if the, what could be helpful today, so, for example, that infinity thing I use sometimes in team stuff, because if there's one thing you can do in today is perhaps, if you agree with the things, is have a shared, um, a shared assumption or a shared way of seeing. And then from there, then you action it into, like, a practical Okay, so this is how we're going to do this project. But we're going to use that infinity sign. As we do that, we're going to use this to monitor and how we engage. You can use that from what I said. And what you were saying with regards to the, the theological things that have been building, that also needs to infuse how you are doing ministry. And every ministry needs to have a direct correlation to those revelations that were there that is actually evidently seen and felt by the people Therefore, if there's any sense, if there is any sense or agitation of like wanting something to be done, that's one way to do it. And then the other question of where are we going, that's another question that's a, a hard one to, to answer, which you guys will figure out. But it, it's a mode in which to go. I don't know. Do you have a follow-up question to that or a thought? I have a uh, hundred questions. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, one, one more real question, just kind of slightly off topic from this one is, you know, you talk lots about, uh, you know, churches kind of coming into their own cult, like what, you know, building their own culture, what, what a bad way to phrase it maybe, but what's their brand? Um, do you, would you say that every church then is kind of reinventing the wheel? You know, or, or maybe a better way to phrase that is, is there a way to look at what's happening in other streams or in other places and be like, wow, I really like that, but we're supposed to be inventing the wheel on our own? Like, what, what's the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's the, the, the way to move forward in that? Absolutely. I mean, learning from others is one thing. I just feel like, actually, back to the 40 Days of Purpose thing, that's like an extreme example of going way too far with that, right? Like, 
in my opinion, like going way too far. And, and, and it's easy because of the idea of excellence that we ascribe greatly to. So if we're past that and it's not necessarily like our ambition to do that, but we can see other things that are happening and incorporate it, as long as it's in trajectory to our narrative, I'm only against it when it takes us off that path into another, you know, parallel whatnot that, that does that. That's the only thing I am, but we can definitely that's build upon it. supposing that we have a, a trajectory, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, we know where we're going, and therefore we can say that some of these other streams would either benefit what we're doing. I mean, come on, let's look Sunday morning. Every church everywhere is singing songs from, you know, all around, whether it's Hillsong or Elevation yeah. or Bethel, you name it. And so, like, <laughs> I, I think... I, I like what you're saying, but there, therefore there must be some trajectory, some vision for where we're headed, correct? Uh, yes, or if I go back to my analogy, um, even if there isn't a forward trajectory, there is a narrative, there's a past narrative. Sure. So the past narrative can determine, predict a little bit of a future trajectory, but um, so that's what I would say to that. So there is a color and there is a genre or whatnot that you are coming, you are in, uh, even if it's not articulated. The, the, the problem sometimes is that if it's not articulated well and it's like kind of fumbling through, that's the hard part that needs to be wrestled with. But um, it's true. And I, and I would just ex exhort you too. Like there's some of us who are very process driven who can work with it. Back to your question there. Like very process driven and can work with the ambiguity. And sometimes we have people, and I think it's good to have in our congregation, who pushes towards, well, what is it? You know what I mean? Like I'm gauging you right now, but that's how I feel. Like you, there could be a gift, the, the idea of like, what does it look like? And how that push for articulation speeds up those like me, who's kind of like, you know, ambiguous, what should we do kind of thing, or, or like subjective to something tangible and living and whatnot. And let me tell you, once you start working, once, if you will do already, the more acute the situations are, like more crisis that occurs or like more people dying or more people sick or like it's a hard time, that's what will also expedia, like accelerate the need to have sometimes more clear like pathways forward because it's hard, life is hard and we don't have the luxury of, of, of doing that so. I hear you, man. If there's other questions, too, let's... Well, you know what? We're going we're gonna to move on because it, uh, it's time for us to do our, our final thing. So uh, would you give Jesse a round of applause? Thanks, you, Jesse. You can ask more questions of him or come talk to me if you want as well. Thank you, Jesse. You gave us an awful lot to think about today, um, a, lot to, a lot to chew on for sure. Um, I just would like to ask, for those who were here last night for the worship and prayer night... Um, did you hear anything today that was confirming of what we, what we heard last night? Just go ahead and shout it out. Release control, okay. Step into the waters. Yes, uncomfort and discomfort. For those who weren't here last night, you might, sorry, this is probably a bit awkward, but I think it's important that we kind of try and close the loop as we listened to God last night and asked him to, to speak. And then we were listening today for confirming words of the things that we, that we heard. Anybody else? Yep, the church is for everyone. Exploration and growth, okay. Anybody else? No magic formula. Talk more about Jesus, not church. Okay? 
I find uh, the passage of Scripture that, um, that I believe God gave me to end our time with today, uh, so many of the themes that have been talked about are found in this passage of Scripture. And it's the, it's the passage where Jesus says to his disciples um, towards the end of his time with them, he says, I confer on you a kingdom. And that word confer is an interesting word. And I'm going to read the passage in a second from uh, Eugene Peterson's message. And I'm glad that in his translation he, he kept the word confer because uh, it's a special word. Um, it's a word that means to bestow upon, uh, to place over. And if you have been to uh, college or university, uh, I don't know if they do this in high school or not, but it was so long ago that I was in high school, I don't remember, but I've, I've had a little more experience with this in university. But um, when you graduate and you come to your convocation and you receive your degree, your degree is conferred upon you. And what that means is not just that you receive a degree, what it means is that you now receive an honor and a responsibility that comes with being a graduate. And as it says on most diplomas, uh, I've got a few of them, so I checked them all. The wording's not exactly the same, but, but uh, it says something like this. It says that, that in receiving this, um, this degree, as it is conferred upon you, you receive it along with the honor, the privilege, and the duty, and the responsibility that goes along with it. That's what that word confer means. So when Jesus says, I confer on you a kingdom, he's bestowing upon his disciples an honor, and a privilege, a duty, and a responsibility. And as I, I love the way Jesse described the journey from, um, from the upper room through to Mars Hill in Athens and the disciples' journey along the way. Uh, I love the picture that you painted, Jesse, of, of you know, first of all, the, shock, the disciples being shocked that Jesus was no longer going to be bodily with them and having to figure that out, and then Pentecost, and then, uh, and then Cornelius, and then ultimately into Mars Hill. And I love the picture that you said that they were, you know, they were waiting together in the upper room, right, just like Jesus had told them to, waiting together for the Holy Spirit. That's where Forestbrook is right now. That's where we are right now, waiting together. And what a beautiful picture that was. And I love the fact that once Pentecost came, they still didn't have it all figured out. They had to learn what it was to be led together and individually in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? They figured it out. They figured it out. And through them, they changed the world. Right? And we're going to figure this out too. We're going to figure it out too. So as I read... As I read this passage over us, see if you hear some of the themes of what we have, have talked about today. Within minutes, they were bickering over who of them would end up the greatest. But Jesus intervened. Kings like to throw their weight around, and people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles. 
It's not going to be that way with you. Let the senior, senior among you become like the junior. Let the leader act the part of the servant. Who would you rather be? The one who eats the dinner or the one who serves the dinner? You'd rather eat and be served, right? But I've taken my place among you as one who serves. You've stuck with me through thick and thin. Now I confer on you the royal authority, a kingdom that my father conferred on me so that you can eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and be strengthened as you take up responsibilities among the congregations of God's people. The Lord confers upon you and me a kingdom. And with that kingdom, all of the honor, all of the privilege, all of the duty, and all of the responsibility that comes with it. And out those doors lies a congregation and a community that is waiting for us to serve them in Jesus' name. We've got a lot to process, Jesse. We've got a lot to think about and talk about. But I hope that we hear in these words of Jesus a commissioning and ascending that we are meant to do together. I want to thank you all so much for coming and uh, invite you back tomorrow as we wrap up Catalyst with uh, our final event on Sunday morning. Melissa, what are you trying to say? Melissa wants her pens back. So you can, there's a basket at the door. You can put your pens in on the way out. You can keep the candies, right? You can keep the candies and you can keep everything else. Um, who am I looking for here? Dan, could I ask you to come and pray on our behalf before we go? Sorry to put you on the spot there. Would you all please stand as Dan comes to pray to end our time together? Let's bow our heads and turn our hearts to God. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for Jesse and for his thoughts, how you led him through these words and you led us through his speaking. Father, we ask for a special blessing upon him and his ministry, that he would continue, Lord, to seek what you have planned for him. Father, I loved his thought of... Whether his giftedness is aligned with your calling, it doesn't always matter. And may that also be a lesson for us. Father, we continue to pray for our church here. More importantly, Lord, that you would put this community around us and the communities that we have around our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and so on, on our hearts. That we would continue to think of this uh, responsibility that we have that uh, Kevin was reminding, reminding us of, of our duty, Lord, to carry on your kingdom here on earth. Father, we ask uh, that you would bless each one of us for the remainder of the day. We ask that you would bless our day tomorrow, and in particular our time here in worshiping together as a community as we continue to honor you, and Lord, uh, seek your blessing upon us. In your precious and holy Son's name we pray, amen.